Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Alice Su. For months, I've been investigating how the Chinese government is trying to silence and control Uyghurs outside China. This is the second episode of The Cage, a special two-part series for Drum Tower. We're publishing it again in case you didn't catch it last week. If you've not listened to the first episode, you'll find it wherever you listen. It's almost impossible to speak to Uyghurs inside Xinjiang about what's happening there. Not just for reporters like me, but also for family members and friends outside of Xinjiang. Uyghurs outside, just like a shadow. A lot of shadows are walking outside. But real life, real spirit is in the cage. I was recently in Istanbul with my guide and translator, Abdueli. He introduced me to many Uyghurs, including Nigara. I've also been speaking on the phone to Koser Wyatt, who lives in the US. So she has like very different mentality than her peers. She always felt like she was an outlier. Both Nigara and Koser left China's northwestern region of Xinjiang a decade ago when they were students. They were both really close to their families. And neither one of them expected that they'd end up in long-term exile as China's government swept more than a million people into camps for re-education. Like many other Uyghurs outside China, Koser and Nagara were cut off from all contact with their families. Koser was out of touch for two years, Nagara for four. Koser's father had been detained in a camp. Nagara couldn't even find out if her parents were alive. In 2019, the Chinese government claimed that the camps were closed. Everyone had graduated, they said. Soon after, I heard from friends that Uyghurs outside China were getting back in touch with their families. I wondered what that meant. Were the controls in Xinjiang loosening? Kosara and Nagara each found state security officials inside Xinjiang who said they would help them to get back in touch. But what I didn't understand until now was how Uyghurs overseas were being forced into making the most difficult decisions of their lives. I had to take a little break to get over the exhaustion. I didn't pick up the phone for eight or nine months. Actually, I'm about to submit a form, UN form for the involuntary disappearance. And it's not just Koser and Nagara who've been going through this. A recent study found that 80% of Uyghurs living in Turkey had been directly threatened or had their families threatened by Chinese authorities. 
two-thirds of Uyghurs living in Britain said the same. Abdulwali told me an old Uyghur folktale about how a free person's spirit is tied to a bird in a cage. As long as that bird is trapped inside, the person outside the cage cannot truly live. Abdulwali said he'd never understood the meaning of that folktale until these last few years. I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent, and in this second episode of our two-part series, The Cage, I want to find out how the Chinese state is able to control Uyghurs far beyond its borders by using the people they care about most. This is Drum Tower, from The Economist. When I was in Istanbul a few weeks ago, I met Nagara. She's one of many Uyghurs who had been out of contact with their families for years, and now we're getting back in touch. In 2021, Nagara accepted a WeChat friend request from a policeman in Xinjiang. He was also Uyghur. He said he was going to help Nagara, but then he told her that her father was dead and her mother was falling into poverty. Nagara wasn't sure if she could trust the policeman. But she kept talking to him. I lost my reason, my rational thinking. I was just thinking, I want to help my mom, nothing else. And because I have been waiting for my mother's news for many years, I didn't want to lose contact again. The policeman told Nagara that she was a bad daughter for letting her mother suffer, He asked her to send money back to Xinjiang. And then he asked Nagara to add another person on WeChat. A friend, he said, who worked in state security. It's unusual to have direct access to a member of China's state security. They are a big deal. They're China's secret police, intelligence, and security agency. They're one of the most powerful branches of the Chinese government. And that power has been growing under Xi Jinping. That security agent promised to help Nagara. And he acted sympathetic at first. He cried with Nagara over her father's death. He told her that his father had died too. And then he started telling Nagara that he loved her. She should come back to China and marry him. When she didn't respond to that, he became angry. At this point, Nagara was already out of school. She was working in real estate. She had a normal life and a daily routine in Turkey. But now she felt like these two men on her phone were taking over her mind. She said the security agent was like a chameleon. He would be kind one moment and then threatening the next. She wondered if he was on drugs. He would call her in the middle of the night, raving about how he had tortured other Uyghurs. He would shout ugly insults at her. And then in the morning, he would apologize and say he was only trying to help. I think he was definitely smoking or taking something. He was constantly sniffing through his nose. His character would change from heaven to earth. 
It's not normal for someone to change like that in a space of two or three hours. And soon, he started asking Nagara for something she wasn't prepared to send. He asked me to send him a naked photo. He said, if you send it to me, then we can help each other. He told me he would only contact my mom if I sent the photo. He said, if I don't, he would never help me. The two men sent Nagara constant voice notes asking when she was going to send what they asked for. Nagara gathered money. She thought about sending it to help her family, but she didn't send it. She was worried that it was a trap. Her friends in Turkey couldn't understand what was happening. When I told my closest friends, they said, Are you crazy? You have to block him. Why are you talking to him? What are you doing? But because I barely had any contact with my mother, I didn't block him. Sometimes Nagara did consider blocking the agents, But then they would send her the things she had longed for the most, like a voice note from her baby sister, who she had been missing for years. My sister said, you wanted to live in Turkey. You can live the life you want there, and you will live well. My mom said, we are fine. We are good if you're fine. Take care of yourself. Get married and have children. Nagara stopped sleeping. Her phone was constantly buzzing with these two men's voices. And then, a week into this, one of the men threatened her directly. We'll bring all of you back to China. Wait and see what we do to you then, he said. And that wasn't an empty threat. Researchers have documented more than 1,300 cases of Uyghurs being detained, extradited, or secretly forcibly returned to China since 2014, including from Turkey. Nagara had thought she was safe when she first accepted those friend requests because she was so far away. But now, she really felt in danger. That night, Nagara had a panic attack. She told me she'd never felt her heart pounding so fast before. She couldn't breathe. A friend brought her to the hospital, and she recovered, but three days later, she had a panic attack again. It was very difficult, and my health has taken a serious hit. My nerves as well. It hit me and my family really hard. I'd be in a better place now if this hadn't happened. I will never fully recover from this. Nagara had thought she was just having a conversation on WeChat, but this had gone way beyond her limits. Nagara was different from some of the other Uyghurs I spoke to. She wasn't an activist. She described herself to me as coming from a normal family, meaning that they stayed far away from politics. And that was common in Xinjiang. 
Coaster Wyatt, who I'd been speaking to in Boston, had to sign a form before he left China in 2013. He had to promise the Chinese government that he wouldn't get involved in politics in the U.S. His parents also warned him to just focus on school. But the camps changed everything for him. Coaster felt it wasn't right to keep quiet about them, even though his dad had been released. He still had cousins who were detained. He started to speak out. The security officials offered help to contact Coaster's parents too, but the condition they gave him was different from Nagara's. And he basically threatened me. He said, "If you are not silent, how can I let you speak to your parents again?" He said, "Just like a family has a rule, a country has a law, and anyone goes against that gets punished." The security agents were forcing Koser to make a choice: shut up, and we will let you continue to speak with your parents, or keep telling the truth, and you will lose them for good. Since closing the re-education camps, the Chinese government has been carrying out a program of forgetting. They want critics of China's Xinjiang policy to believe that all is back to normal. China's ambassador to the EU recently suggested that China and the EU should lift sanctions and revive an investment deal that was stalled because of China's human rights violations in Xinjiang. I've been trying very hard to push for the、uh, unlocking of this issue, but the sad thing is that、uh, some people, some politicians, have politicized this issue. This is an economic issue, so they have、uh, politicized this issue. And now this issue is、uh, suspending in the air, if you like, in the European Parliament because of the sanctions. Here's Hua Chunying, the Chinese Foreign Ministry's spokeswoman, in March 2021. 四十年来，新疆维吾尔族的人口从五百五十万增长到了一千两百八十万。She's saying the population of Uyghur people in Xinjiang has increased over the past 40 years. Their life expectancy has grown. People of all ethnic groups are enjoying the rights granted by the Chinese Constitution, and all people in Xinjiang enjoy stability, security, development, and progress. She calls Xinjiang one of the most successful human rights stories. China has also trained dozens of influencers, Chinese, Uyghur, and foreign, to promote tourism in Xinjiang. Here's one of many. There's a guy called Rafa, and he takes us around that same Disney version of Xinjiang that I saw in Kashgar. And it has nearly a hundred thousand views. Emily is very talented. Some of them sing, some of them dance, and some other play instruments. We also had the privilege to enjoy some music and dance performances. What a lovely culture! Koser hated that propaganda. For years, he had been speaking up about his family, keeping a daily diary on Twitter of messages to his father as a counterpoint to the Chinese media's lies. But last year, when the security agent gave him an ultimatum, he toned it down. And I kind of slowed down on my Twitter, thinking that they would actually allow me to speak with my parents. I did tweet less than normal. But Koser was also wary of that security agent. He didn't rush back to ask for a second call right away. Because I was afraid that if I ask him for a favor, he may ask me for a favor like being spy or 
gathering intelligence of dissidents here. But then something happened that Koser wanted to talk to his parents about. It was the biggest news of all. I had a newborn in June. I wanted to hint this to my parents because back in January, even though my wife was pregnant, I could not tell them that because even saying I'm you know married here, settling here kind of refers me as a you know betrayer of the country, and um, because they always want us to be back. Koser knew that the agent listening to his call wanted Uyghurs overseas to return to Xinjiang, so he felt like he had to hide that he was now making a life in the U.S. But he still wanted his parents to know about his baby. So last August, Koser contacted the security agent again to set up another call. This time, they got to speak for almost an hour, and he wants to tell them that he has a newborn. But because the security agent is in the room, he can't. So he tries to hint, and I did hint to my parents about my baby, kind of in a way that my childhood was it hard,、uh, was it a lot of work? For us, it was a lot of work. You know, it, we, I had no idea it would be <laughs> so、uh, exhausting, and you know, it was a lot of work for us. I'm not sure if they got the hints he was trying to send, but then at the end of the call. The agent reminds Koser to be careful about what he does outside. It's clear what he means. If you want to have more calls like this, stay away from activism. Koser also has a brother and a sister. He hadn't spoken to them since 2017, so of course, during those calls, he asked his parents about them. But his parents said each time that they were out. But again, later on, I learned that they were not allowed to be on the call. Probably they did not want to give away, you know, the whole family and show them to me. But Koser could still see updates from his 19-year-old sister Kamila on WeChat, even though he couldn't talk to her directly. From her posts, I could see very deep thoughts that、uh, sometimes she would post about. Poems and some quotations from some writers. Very deep, though. Like even now, I see her、um, that brief bio. It says, "Death awaits us," which scared me in the beginning. But you know, later on, <laughs> she told me it's just you know, it's common sense. Death awaits us. <laughs> Last autumn, Koser and Kamila had a breakthrough. They found a way to communicate with each other online. Although they couldn't be sure it was safe for her, if China's security state detected that she was in touch with someone outside of China, she'd be in trouble. Many other Uyghurs had been sent to the camps for having foreign contacts, and Koser knew it was dangerous to talk with Kamila, but he couldn't stop himself. She was answering so many of his questions about what had happened in the last few years, and now they finally had a way to talk directly. It felt so good to speak without the agent in the room. She told him about how depressed she had been when their father was in the camp, and how lonely she felt at her new school in Henan. On November twenty fourth, twenty twenty two, a locked down building in Urumqi caught fire. At least ten of the residents died, and videos of that fire went viral online. 
Adding to that anger is a fire that broke out in the capital of China's far west Xinjiang region on Thursday night. Ten people were killed and nine injured. Most parts of Xinjiang have been under lockdown for more than a hundred days. Angry citizens, fed up after three years of zero COVID restrictions, held vigils for the fire victims. Those vigils turned into protests. The deadly fire sparked nationwide outrage because widely circulated videos, which have now been censored in China, show that COVID lockdown measures very likely delayed firefighters from getting to the scene. This it was the most widespread public dissent in China in years. Entrance was partially blocked with fences, tents, and metal barriers that are normally used as part of COVID measures. The video shows smoke and flames coming from a high floor of the building, but the water failing to actually reach the fire. Kamila started posting about the vigils on Chinese social media. Her dad told her to stop. He said he would disown her if she didn't. So she was really hurt by those comments because she felt she's, you know, not doing something wrong. It's just post. And I, I told her it's, you know, they're trying to protect you and um, it's how it is now and you got to be careful. And so she actually did not talk with my dad for two weeks afterwards because of, you know, what happened. She was hurt and um, and I asked her to reach out to my dad and apologize because, I mean, in my eyes, my dad is still protecting her and uh, they already kind of lost a son. And losing her would be a lot of, you know, a lot for them. And then in December, just after Kamila went home to Atush for the winter holiday, she went quiet. Kosa worried. Maybe their dad was angry and had taken her phone away. Or maybe Kamila had been arrested for her WeChat posts. Or worse, for talking to him. Uyghur journalists helped Koser confirm that Kamila had been detained. And that's when he decided that no matter what he had said to the security agent and to his parents, he couldn't stay silent any longer. He got back on Twitter. He talked to journalists. He contacted his congresswoman. I cannot tell if my activism helps her or hurts her. Still, he took the risk. You know, it's really unpredictable. the the regime's policies, so I cannot tell, but um, I felt like I need to do this. Koser knew the security agents would be angry. They might cut him off from his parents again, but he felt he had to do something for Kamila. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. After Nagara was released from her second stint in the hospital, she decided to cut the security agents off, even though that meant losing touch with her family again. After that, I deleted the rest of the text and kept the phone somewhere else. 
I was hospitalized because I was so panicked and nervous. I had to take a little break to get over the exhaustion. It had only been 10 days since that first message, but she had felt entirely under the two men's control. They were playing with me. They're trained for this. Their goal was to manipulate me. That experience is not unique to Nagara. In Turkey, I spoke to other Uyghurs who'd been offered contact with their families by Xinjiang police. They asked for different things in exchange. Money, photos, self-censorship, or information on other Uyghurs. One man even told me he was asked to provide Abdueli's phone number. I also met some Uyghurs in Istanbul who had already decided that it wasn't worth it to even acknowledge what had happened in Xinjiang. One businessman I met refused to criticize the Chinese government at all. He told me China has long borders and Xi Jinping has to protect them. His own son had been detained for years, but when I asked what he thought about what had happened to his homeland or what he hoped for his future, he refused to answer. I don't think about these big questions, he said. I just focus on raising my own children. He acted like he knew nothing. And I recognized this feigned ignorance that I'd seen so many times before in China, where people played dumb for their own protection. That's what was so troubling about the Uyghur community overseas. More and more of them were living as if they were still inside the cage. It took a whole year for Nagara to recover psychologically from those 10 days of contact with the police. She started meditating and avoiding the news or sad music or anything that reminded her of home. She read poetry and practiced English and French. She stood on her balcony and looked at the sea. She avoided her phone. It was locked in a drawer along with her past Chinese life. To be honest, I don't know what to say anymore because I tired everyone around me by recounting my experience. I won't tell anyone anymore. I'll write if I'm upset. I'll not make anyone uncomfortable except Abdveli. But I really want to find a solution to this problem and to reunite with my mother and sister. I really want to see them. I want to hear their voices. Nagara still longs to see her mother and sisters again. Sometimes they come into her dreams. I saw my mom in a dream last night. She came to my door. The more a girl grows up, the more she needs her mother. Like, when I was in love, I wanted to ask her lots of questions. Because she's not just my mom, she's my best friend. We talked a lot, every day. We were really good friends. And now, I feel empty. Just empty.
Nagara told me she had seen news reports of other Uyghurs speaking out about their family members. Many of those relatives inside Xinjiang were then forced to appear in propaganda videos. They had to say everything was fine and denounce their families outside. When she asked me if speaking up would help her family, I couldn't say yes. I knew that Koser was struggling with the same questions. He often thinks about a question the security official asked him. Who are you expecting help from? This was his question. I said nobody. Like that question, who are you expecting help from, kind of really rings in my ear because within, you know, a month now I've been advocating for my sister, but I'm not, still I'm feeling like helpless, like there's no, nobody can actually help me, right? So that question still rings in my ear because literally like nobody can help. After I left Istanbul, several other Uyghurs that Abdueli introduced me to, especially the ones who were in touch with police, asked to go off the record. Some of them told me they were negotiating. The police had promised to free this or that relative or to let them meet with this or that family member. They wanted to keep their stories private as leverage in case the police didn't deliver. Others feared losing contact with their families yet again. They could forget the past and pretend like it never happened if it meant they might have a future with their parents, siblings, spouses, and children. One Uyghur told me that the police were playing a sick mind game, but it was working. Still, both Koser and Nagara asked us to use their real names and voices in this story. When I double-checked to make sure, Nagara wrote me a message. She said, I've hidden for so many years and nothing has changed. This is the truth. I don't want to hide. Before publishing these episodes, the Economist's Beijing Bureau sent a request to China's foreign ministry and the Xinjiang regional government for information about Kamila, Koser's sister. We asked them where she was, when her trial would happen, and what her charges were. Koser had told me that he hoped international pressure would get Kamila released. He had told the UN about her disappearance, but they hadn't gotten any response from the Chinese delegation. We also asked Chinese authorities about their threats to Uyghurs abroad. We cited reports that more than 5,500 Uyghurs had been targeted in 44 countries, including 1,500 cases of detention and forced return to China. The foreign ministry replied, they said that such reports were ludicrous and filled with threatening lies by anti-China forces who want to smear Xinjiang. They said these reports are not worthy of a response. And then they added that people of all ethnicities in Xinjiang are living and working happily and that anti-China forces who smear Xinjiang are doomed to fail. They also gave us some news about Kamila. She had already been sentenced on March 25th this year. Her crime was promoting extremism. They didn't tell us the length of her sentence, but Chinese law says it's usually less than five years of prison, except in extreme cases, which can be more. I called Koser again to let him know. As far as we know, Kamila Wyatt has been sentenced on March 25th for promotion of 
extremism, Shenyang Jiduan Zhu Yizui, and she is now serving her sentence, and she has her legal rights protected. Um, Do they say like how long the term is? They didn't say. I think we are gonna follow up again and ask them again. To my surprise, Koser already knew. His parents had gotten back in touch with him recently, and this very same morning that I called him, they had told him about communist sentencing too, and they were asking him not to talk about it. And they were basically saying, you know, we because it was almost four years they lost me,、uh, lost communication with me. So they were basically saying, for communists, matter of time. I mean, for four years he didn't he didn't even talk to his sister, and two years is gonna pass real quick. It's like a you know training for her.、Um, training for her. Like basically saying she will get、um, like tougher or like、uh. like educated or whatever the term is. So you know the term that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That kind of statement that、um, like it. I mean, the mentality is very different. That you know, my father is basically saying, like, you know, it's not a necessarily bad thing. For Koser's parents, China's system of control was impossible to change. They told him that speaking out would only make it worse for them, and it wouldn't help his sister. He told me that his mother was crying and begging him not to speak. And. I could see why the Chinese government's strategy is so effective. They make you feel that telling the truth is selfish, that it will destroy the lives of the people you love, and so if you love them, you should accept China's control. You should act like everything is normal. But that is also dangerous. Before we said goodbye, Abdulali told me one last story. He has a niece, his brother's daughter, who he loves. He was there when she was born. I'm the first one hold her when she delivered, and oh,、ah, like I, it's my first time to see small, <laughs> like very small life, opening the mouth and looking around. I said, "Oh, this is the life," and. Because of at the time there is a moon there, I said, let's call her Mihrai. It means that love of moon. I gave that name to her, and she learned her English pretty well and like much better than me. Yeah, she got a good education in Tokyo University. She studied biotechnology. Mihrai was in Tokyo, but her father was detained in Xinjiang. She also got in touch with security agents back there, and she made a different choice from Nagara and Koser. Instead of giving up the negotiations with the agents and forsaking contact with her family, Mihrai followed the agents' instructions and went back to Xinjiang. I don't know how did she believe that she can save her father when she listened to those Chinese police. Yeah, she she followed the instruction and she went back in、uh, 2019. She told her friends she can save her father if she paid that price. If she uh, like uh, back to China, I don't know how could she believe that. 
And then she got arrested in uh, June 18th in Shanghai airport. Did she tell you she was going back? Uh, she told me when she was at the airplane. She told me that I'm going back. And I couldn't believe my ears. I just shocked. I couldn't know how to respond. And then she said, the airplane is going to fly. And then I said, okay, but uh, listen to me. Uh, don't say yes during the interrogation. And uh, delete all of the information on your cell phone and make it as uh, like factory model, like factory style. Blah, blah, blah. And then I said, uh, in that case, they couldn't find anything. And don't took your laptop with you. And uh, it's better to not to take your uh, cell phone with you. Just go with your body and with your clothes. I don't know what happened after that. Like I learned she arrested and she was on the list of fugitive after this leaked document. Yeah. Mihai died in detention. It was this story from Abdueli that helped me make sense of everything I'd been hearing. It helped me understand how dangerous Kosar and Nagara's negotiations with those agents actually were, and why it matters that they were able to say no to them, even though it meant giving up contact with their loved ones. Because Mihrai made the opposite choice from Kosar and Nagara. She listened to the security agents. She complied, and she lost her life. The Chinese government wants everyone to forget about its crimes in Xinjiang and to hide how those crimes continue today. It may be succeeding. The outrage that the world felt in 2019 has faded. Exports from Xinjiang have nearly doubled in the past two years. Exports from Xinjiang to the EU increased by a third in 2022. Koser's cousins and uncles are still in detention. And now, so is his sister. Nagara doesn't know if she'll ever speak with her family again. The crackdown in Xinjiang was terrifying. I saw the security infrastructure, the checkpoints, the cameras, the camps, the cage. But I worry about this new stage of normalization. While the world moves on, China has put Xinjiang in a different kind of cage, one that no longer needs so many physical bars and barriers. It's invisible. Everyone pretends it's not there, but it is. It's just beneath the surface. It's reaching far beyond China's borders, and it's built out of fear. Uyghurs outside, just like a shadow. A lot of shadow are walking outside, but real life, real spirit is in the cage. Kosar and Nagara often feel like shadows too. The cage was closing around them. They felt that fear, but they chose to expose it rather than let it control them.
This episode was produced by Alicia Burrell and Barkley Bram. Research was by Constance Chang. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Sound design is by Nico Rofest and Wei Dong Lin. Drum Tower's music was composed by Jocelyn Tan, and additional music is by Alim Jan and Nun Sounds. Our thanks to Mukadas Mijit. You can read my reporting, which accompanies this podcast, on The Economist's website. If you subscribe already, thank you. If you don't, we have a free 30-day digital subscription just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash drum offer. If you want to hear more about Uyghurs in China, you can hear Abdueli tell his own story to my colleague Su Lin Wang on our podcast series, The Prince. It's an eight-part series looking at the life of Xi Jinping. You'll find it wherever you listen. Thank you for listening to Drum Tower. <laughs>